Welcome. Welcome aboard to Fishing Without Bait, a lifetime without definitive expectations. Whether you've got here by accident or on purpose or perhaps just woke up and found yourself here, you're not in a dream. You're not in a nightmare. You're with Fishing Without Bait and Full Impact Mindfulness. Hello, my name is Jim Ellermeyer. I'm a behavioral health therapist, and there is no admission fees for being here. All you required is the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to try. We're If you're welcome nowhere else, you're certainly welcome here. And as always, we like to catch up with some of our guests from the past. And one of our favorite guests is uh, Professor Buzzkill. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with him, please catch his podcast. Please catch his videos. And please catch our previous episodes on The Complete Angler, which is not about fishing mm-hmm. so and as always welcome joe welcome aboard welcome thank you. professor thank you for having me back yeah very rarely yes. when someone with the name professor buzzkill gets invited back to places so you get thrown out so if we have our listening audience out there who doesn't want to go back through and <laughs> catch the meaning and how professor buzzkill came to be could you explain that please well it's good that you asked me today because i just got back today was a, a, a big teaching day for me and it was the first time that I can remember, this semester was the first time, I, I think the first time ever, that all my students have been born in the 21st century. Ah. So that was a big thing. So not only do they not get my jokes or things I reference, I have to say, ask your, and I used to have to say, ask your parents. Now I say, ask your grandparents. <laughs> and it's, I say that because it's the students who named me Professor Buzzkill about 10 years ago because I used to always bust myths that they would, they would bring in stories they pulled off the internet or or quotes they'd heard, did so-and-so do this, did so-and-so do that, or say this, that, say that. So and I'd always say been, no. You may have been the original Mythbuster. Uh, no, well, no, I think there were those two guys that in the 90s that had that show uh, before YouTube, mm. Mythbusters, and they would, but they would do sort of science-y things. Yes. I think I'm the first history one. Mm. So that's why, and so we started the podcast that way, and um, like you say, everything's at ProfessorBuzzkill.com, and we try to do a podcast a week. And then, you know, meet with our friends on their on their podcasts and uh-huh. their videocasts. So, could you share with us today what uh, our discussion may center around? <laughs> uh, well, it centers around well. What I said suggested to you when we talked about this before was to refer to and analyze a speech that Martin Luther King gave in 1967 called "Where Do We Go From Here," and it was a very important chronological point in the civil rights movement because there had been a great number of successes, but there was still a lot more yet to do. And King gives this speech, it's a very famous speech, one of his you know, top five famous speeches, but as I say to people all the time, they only know this speech from the little brief inspirational clips like at the end, the, the flights of rhetoric, the refer- references just to spirituality or to things like that. There's an awful lot more in the speech and in all the work that he did that we really need to try to remember and try to recall. So have you ever heard the term uh, when people suddenly make it? They get discovered in a film or they have a best-selling novel mm-hmm. or a song that hits the charts. People refer to them as an overnight success. <laughs> have you ever been – are you familiar with the term – I'm a 20-year overnight success? Well, almost everybody is, because, of course, this speech, for instance, given 1967, Dr. King makes his first sort of national impact in the Birmingham 
bus boycott in 1955 and really starts early in the 50s. So he's an almost 20-year overnight success. But people forget forget about that. They think that you go, you go from the sitting in at lunch counters to the I have a dream speech to the next day, and then the Civil Rights Act of 1965 is passed. Well, there, there's an awful – there's an immense amount of work that's done in, in, between, in the inter- – in, first of all, there are a lot of intervening years, and there's an immense amount of work being done in those intervening, intervening years to get this stuff done. So when people know of Dr. King, they mainly know of the sound bites. The sound bites. And that's one of the things that, that distresses us most, distresses historians most, about the way people see history. They think of these little clips, JFK saying, you know, ask not, blah, 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 blah. And we tend to forget, we tend to overlook all the stuff that goes into making either those sound bites or those um, policy um, directions or those um, attempts to improve something or any sort of uh, political progress or anything like that it takes years and years and years of effort. And as, as everybody also says, in addition to the overnight, is the 10,000 hours thing. You know, in order to be good at anything, you, in order to accomplish anything, you have to have put in 10,000 hours in your lifetime. That kind of reminds me of when there's a huge public works project, maybe right. a there's a groundbreaking ceremony for a building or whatever. They have the people with these golden shovels, and they're all yeah. sitting there with a little bit of uh, dirt in their in their spade. And but that's the last <laughs> effort that they're going to make at that building. <laughs> but that's the picture that gets in the paper, correct? Whereas the, the the folks who did all the hard work over years planning and then actually doing it. Mm-hmm. Get largely forgotten. So quite often in my practice, what we do is a person, I'll have a person, what do they want to do? They want to set a goal, okay? And I'll have them build a pyramid. And the goal's on the top, let's say, let's say buying a house. And so when, if you and I would say, let's buy a house together. Oh, that's great. So we get in a car and we start running around looking for homes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't, we don't want to do the steps that it takes yeah. to make a goal happen. Right. So could you talk a little bit about, you're familiar with Dr. Goal, Dr. King's struggles. Uh, tell, tell us a little bit about what you know about what he went through. Well, he goes through an, an awful lot. I mean, he start, starting back in the 50s, as I say, with people like Rosa Parks and other civil rights, uh, early civil rights campaigners in the South, they start to first organize as ministers and other civil rights, um, if you will, pioneers to work on specific things like the Montgomery bus boycott, like the lunch counter boycotts. And this, over the next 10, 15 years, develops not only as an effective civil rights movement, but as, as an effective political movement because it breaks out of Birmingham, it breaks out of the South, and it turns into something that gets national attention. But, like you say, he's not only a pastor all this time, he's working—I don't know how in the world he ever had time to have children, because he's working all, all full day as a pastor. He's working every night on any, one, any number of committees, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, et cetera, et cetera, to get civil rights um, action, uh, civil rights legislation passed, or, or proposed at least. And he does this— in the South, in Georgia, in in in, in Alabama, and in the other uh, deep Southern states, without any sort of glory or without any spotlight or anything on him at all. So, if you see pictures of his early campaigns in the in the early fifties, he's very young. We look at because he was very young. He was thirty years old when he starts all this stuff, 
And it's just astounding to think that he is able to start with that intensity, but keep it going the whole time. I think that people don't realize the depth of and the meaning of discrimination and the imprisonment, the strictures that black people had in the South. Could you say some of the things that people actually had to put up with? Well, they had to put up with almost complete segregation. They had a number of legal rights, but they were legal rights on paper. So, for instance, three important constitutional amendments are passed after the Civil War during the Reconstruction period, outlawing slavery, banning slavery, giving African-American citizenship, and also giving African-American men the right to vote. And then later, African-American women are also given the right to vote. But... The, the way our government is set up, state governments, the way national governments set up, state governments can put in all these clauses or all these special cases that Dr. King refers to in the speech we're going to talk about tonight, interposition and nullification. Right? A state, the, the state capital in Atlanta can get in the, in the way of civil rights legislation and say, oh, yes, you have the right to vote, but you have to pay a poll tax. You have the right to vote, but you have to pass a literacy test. You have the rights, but you have to do all these things. And they're all aimed at very, very poor, disenfranchised people. Right? And these are overwhelmingly African-American. They're so brazen at the time that when they're sitting in the, their state legislators writing, legislatures writing these, these, this uh, stuff, they actually talk about it. We don't want to have blacks voting, so let's have a poll tax because that won't technically be unconstitutional, blah, 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 blah. So they're openly saying, and there are minutes being taken by the secretaries and everything else, that we want to discriminate against black people, but we're going to have to do it in this sort of special backdoor manner. And what that means is every, every black person in the South, certainly, and, and in great many places in the North, lives – there are two societies. There's a fully black society, often the other side of the tracks, and a fully white society, and they're not integrated at all. And black people have a lot of rights on paper, but in fact, almost none of them can be used in, in practice. So um, I hope everybody's seen the pictures of two water fountains labeled, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. restrooms labeled, right? schools labeled, Yeah, not allowed to go into libraries, not allowed to be friends with a black person. Right. Not allowed to eat at a lunch counter or a what we would today call a deli. Yes. I particularly remember, uh, Professor, uh, the scene when the schools, in particularly Alabama, and I remember George Wallace standing in Mm. front of the course with an axe handle in his hand. And President Eisenhower had to send in the 102nd Airborne Division, the Screaming Eagles. And that picture, or that film of these five little black children yeah. being surrounded by paratroopers with rifles in order and for them the, to go to school and the white people standing there screaming these horrible things at these children it's it's imp- almost impossible to overestimate or over exaggerate the level of discrimination and racism at the time uh, there's still obviously a lot of it now but the way it was so open and so visible and so vicious is astounding every time the more I look into it, I'm getting in the sort of last few decades of my career now, and I just I keep thinking someday I won't be shocked. 
And every single time I look into something new about this, I'm shocked at how bad it was. So Dr. King was the face of the civil rights movement back then. Okay. Well, he became the face. Yes. Let's say that. He, he yes, starts he off as one of a, uh, a dozen top people and then ultimately becomes... But people like John Lewis were very important, who's still alive. Ralph Abernathy is very important. Rosa Parks is very important. People think of Rosa Parks as being this meek housewife who just sits down on the bus because she's tired and just is too tired to get up and, and refuses to move her seat. Well, all of that was planned by the... By the um, Civil rights by civil rights workers in, uh, 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 sorry, all that was planned by civil rights workers in in advance, right? They wanted to have this purposeful action where Rosa Parks is going to sit down and refuse. Now she says to the press, "I'm just tired," but it was an immense amount of work and planning and and bravery when it went into uh, the planning and execution of that. So yeah, so so eventually through the '60s he becomes the most famous, right? But even then, after the after his death. It's almost as if the, the whole civil rights movement gets wrapped up in one person, and that's, that's unfortunate because there are a lot of people. Well, we tend to develop cults of personality. Cults of personality, very strong thing. And the group think, the leader. Uh, however, people don't look at all that everything that went into. So for our listeners out there, if you're involved in a business, if you're organizing a fun drive, if you're organizing a school dance if you're even planning a play date for your children there's <laughs> yeah. there's action and effort that is involved in that and other people almost always other people too so i think now's a good time to introduce the lottery story which i talk about it in recovery and at rehabs uh most people live their lives on wishing and hoping and waiting for something to happen one of the famous union slogans is let george do it let George do it. Uh, so there was a person who prayed to win the lottery every day, Professor. <laughs> Sweat blood. Nothing ever happened. And they got so angry one day that they ran outside and they yelled up at this guy. They said, God, please let me win the lottery. Why won't you let me win the lottery? And God called back down and says, could you meet me halfway and at least buy a ticket? <laughs> so this, yes, is we, what I, this is what I impress right. oh, upon yeah, people. Yeah. Buy the ticket. Right, right. And in order to buy the ticket towards uh, greater progress in civil rights, you have to start by doing something like staging, well, not staging, but directly doing a sit-in on the bus or sitting at, sit in at the Woolworth lunch counters. So there's a couple of things that prevent people from moving ahead, Professor. One is fear, fear of rejection, fear of humiliation, fear of failure, and in this particular case, fear of your life. Fear of your life, exactly that. And the next thing is Needing the approval of others to do it. Well, and I think what's so, why this relates so well to your work is because Martin Luther King and all of his colleagues worked together. So Ralph Abernathy's was just as important in the sort of theology and philosophy behind this movement. And there was sort of a, a safety in numbers. They felt not only safe with each other, but they felt, okay, I, I want to be, I want to be seen. In fact, King says this a lot. I want to be thought well of by Dr. Abernathy. I'm sure Abernathy thought the same thing. So I'm working hard for, for my people, but I'm also working hard because he's watching me. And Abernathy knows I'm working hard because King is watching me. And the younger people in the movement, like Jesse Jackson, are looking up to these leaders. So there's a kind of safety in numbers aspect 
and there's an inspiration in numbers aspect. Well, this is a speech that he gives to the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which is one of two major organizations that King was involved with. Um, well, at least two major organizations King was involved with. And on August 16th, 1967, in Georgia, this is the 11th annual SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference Convention in Atlanta. And the SCLC is really the group, it's not only the think tank for putting forward civil rights um, reform ideas, it is, the, it is the group that organizes and gets the stuff done. Okay, so it's really the big one. We tend to think of the NAACP as the big one. This one in the six, 50s and 60s was the big one. So you're talking about the actual soldiers. The actual soldiers, and there are a lot of them. I think Dr. King would say, um, and a good person to ask would be Jesse Jackson because he's still alive, or John Lewis because he's still alive, how many people do you think were, you know, at least as responsible for these changes as Dr. King? And they'd probably say 100. There were probably 100 leaders that were as important as Dr. King, but of course he becomes a, the, the figurehead. The, it, the reason why this convention is so important and why this speech is so important is because in 1967, if you will, the moderate civil rights campaigners, King, Abernathy, right, are starting to lose um, some traction in the African-American community and more, radicals, uh, more radical campaigners like Malcolm X are capturing more and more attention. And it looks to moderates as if, uh-oh, the civil rights movement is slipping away from us, and we, and I don't mean they're, they're not being selfish about it, but they don't want to see it go down a radical, dangerous, slash violent road. And so he calls this, he entitles this speech, Where Do We Go From Here? And that's why it's so pivotal, even though it's only a year before um, he's shot. You know, how do we handle this new thing going on? How do we handle the fact that the radical aspect of the African-American community is, or the radical section of, of the civil rights movement is starting to make the rest of us look more radical. And we're actually losing white support. People forget that Martin Luther King was very highly regarded in northern white circles for the longest time until the mid to late 60s when, these, when the radicals on the, other, on the, on the fringes of, of the civil rights movement started to sort of like, well, he got tarred with that brush too. Guilt and by association. Was, guilt by association. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, People have a tendency, we all have a tendency, that we want results, and we want them now. Right. Now, as far back, look at, look at the Bible's Jesus. Mm-hmm. They were so disappointed that he <laughs> wasn't a great leader and was going to kick the Romans out of, out of Israel. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it, it's, it never happens that way. But you see, as we look back, we only look back in sound bites or video bites or however, whatever you want to call them. And so we see things like Kennedy in 1961 says, we pledge before this decade is out to land a man on the moon and return him to the earth. And then the next, the very next click, clip, five seconds later, is Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. Looks like it happened the next day. Or Ronald Reagan saying, Mr. Gorbachev, tearing on this wall. And then you see the wall coming down. Mm-hmm. Um, in reality, there were years in between the, 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 the statement and the, and the action, and a lot of other people did a lot of things to get those things done. We're taught now that people have, as we talked earlier, quick forgetters. Oh, yeah. Okay? Yeah. And we constantly need to have something put in front of our face that is either outrageous mm-hmm. or incredibly interesting or 
unfortunately, uh, something showing the misfortune of others. Right. I think that's so true. And, you know, drama sells. And so when we, you know, more people go on YouTube and look, look at um, the news clips, the, the clips of the, of the YouTube videos about the news reports of Dr. King's assassination, then look at news clips or, or news documentaries about the, about the actual bus uh, boycott or the sit-ins at Woolworths lunch counters and things like that. The, the tragedy draws people in, and the tragedy only takes a millisecond because he gets shot. That's what people want to see. The number on, on, on YouTube, I've looked at the, the numbers for these things, for, for MLK and for JFK and even for Bobby Kennedy. It's just distressing. Everyone wants to see the, the assassinations. No one wants to see the... They want to see the train see wreck. the assassinations, but... They want to see the train wreck. They want to see the car mm-hmm. wreck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's too bad because so much, as we talk about, so much goes into to doing, to, to doing what needs to be done. Well, Dr. King goes into detail in this speech about what it takes to get things done. Right. I mean, we, I've, I, I prepared for us a, a document of this speech, of the full text of the speech as it's given. It's nine pages long, single-spaced, right, double-sided. Okay, this, is, this is a speech that takes over an hour to give, so your listeners should go online and listen to the full text of the speech rather than the last, uh, the full audio of the speech rather than the last five seconds. And as I've, as I've said before, in planning this show, he spends at least 50% of this time talking about the direct action the civil rights movement took, especially consumer boycotts. And to me, that was, when I first started looking into this a couple of years ago, that was just an astounding thing because, of course, as we, as we keep saying, you never hear about those things happening and you never hear about them being praised in this way. We talk about our memories. Memories are formed by strong emotional arousal. Mm-hmm. Okay. And generally, when you're reading through this wonderful speech, uh, it's all really good stuff, but there's nothing in there that would elicit strong emotions. We can all agree on it. No, well, unless you're there. Because mm-hmm. one thing that, that in, the, in the text that I have, the people who transcribed it have put in the audience um, yes. interjections. So I know, I know that the, uh, there's a great line early on this speech, one that you, I know that you like, and that, where King says, in short, over the last 10 years, this is early on in the speech, first page. In short, over the last 10 years, the Negro decided to straighten his back up. And the audience interjects, yes, realizing that a man cannot ride your back unless it's bent. Yes, that's right, people are shouting. So, and this is in the, in the before he, well, sort of in the beginning of the stage where he starts to talk about specific boycotts and specific shoe leather work, what we used to call shoe leather work, being out there on the streets actually doing stuff. Beating the streets. Beating the streets. The whole, the whole, the whole idea that... It's perfectly good for us to talk about inspirational things, and those things are very, very important. But as you can see, the sort of mathematics I did on, <laughs> about how many wor- uh, um, academics call this content analysis, how many words are you being spoken on a specific subject in a speech, I've got 50% of his time in this speech is talking about the detail work, talking about boycotting ice cream, boycotting Coca-Cola, boycotting this, boycotting A&P. Well, half of these things, well, Coca-Cola still exists, but A&P doesn't exist anymore, neither does Seal Test Ice Cream. You have to actually have people who will not go into the stores, not just Dr. King right. or any of right. the 100 leaders right. Right. doing that. 
and they did it. And that, this is, again, this is the type of thing that's completely forgotten. A lot of people know about the bus boycott. A lot of people know about the, the Woolworth lunch counter boycotts because a lot of those are filmed and the confrontations are filmed. But I don't know of any news footage of people boycotting A&P because A&P's hiring practices were discriminatory in, in Alabama and the SCLC essentially through what's called Operation Breadbasket yes. gets the A&P to change that policy almost overnight. When the entire community, the entire African American community, boycotts A and P, and A and P realizes, uh oh, we can't afford to, we can't afford to be this racist. So we, when Dr. King in here talks about empowering mm-hmm. the community, he talks about them empowering through their purchasing power. Yes, and one of the quotes is I can't remember exactly where it is, and I might get the, the wording slightly wrong, but what he says is that we have to. Make these people understand, if you respect my dollar, you must respect my person. Yes. I'm not going to spend my dollar with you if, you're not gonna hire, if you don't hire uh, the same percentage of African Americans that are in the town. I'm not going to spend my dollar with you if I have to go entirely across town to get this ice cream because you won't put an A&P market in, a, in an African American neighborhood. On and on and on and on and on. And it works. Yes, it does. Every single time this has this worked, every single time, the big companies back down. Absolutely, because of the power of the dollar. Power of the dollar. Please check out our website at fishingwithoutbait.com, where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in flying the colors of Fishing Without Bait, click the shop icon on our website, We have clothing, mugs, cell phone cases, and so much more. Show the world that you fish without bait. This show is a member of the Sorgatron Media Podcast Network. Find out more at sorgatronmedia.com.